Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Here we are, Charles. I'm really interested about today's topic. I think it's going to be great, oh, yeah, but I'm worried that people might think it's boring. But I feel like it's actually how such in, a relevant topic. How at the could moment. inflation possibly be boring, Jessica? <laughs> Well, I think hopefully we will prove that actually it's not. And there's a lot of really interesting things to discuss here and something that lots of people need to be aware of right now. I think that's exactly right. And it's interesting that it's not just in the insurance world that people are more and more worried about inflation. You can open any newspaper, The Economist, anything. Inflation across the board is becoming a big, big worry. Not necessarily high inflation yet, but the risk of future high inflation. And I mean, in insurance, it's absolutely critical. So I'm thrilled that we're talking about it today. Yeah, and today we're joined by Ed Harrison. He's going to be discussing inflation with us. So Ed is a senior consultant at LCP and has experience helping firms with reserve reviews, solvency twos, actuarial function reports and audits. Ed has a particular interest in enhancing companies' reserving processes through developing new approaches and by automating more traditional techniques. In his own time, he is a very keen sailor. So welcome to the podcast, Ed. Thank you very much. It is super exciting to be here. It was really exciting. Now I'm a little bit nervous because I've got to try and do this very non-boring topic a lot of justice. (laughs) Well, maybe that's where we should start is just, I guess, giving you a background as to why this has become such a hot topic at the moment, as Sean just said, for everyone, not just insurers. So, I mean, I guess you just need to look in the news. Inflation is rarely out of it at the moment. I think I saw the Bank of England saying that UK's inflation will probably be by 4% by December, which is a lot more than we've seen in the past few years. And it's not just the UK either. I think the OECD is saying similar, 4 to 4.5% across sort of the G20, 2021, 2022. So that is very different to what we've seen in the past. And a lot of it is due to the recent COVID-19 impacts. So it's going to be interesting to see how those play out. And I suppose at the time that we're recording this, we're all struggling to find uh, petrol stations that actually have some stock. I think at the seventh petrol station I visited last night, I finally was able to fill up. Should we take it back to basics and just set out what we mean by inflation, the different types of inflation, to just give us a bit of grounding? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess put really simply, inflation is just the idea that the price of goods and services tends to go up slowly over time. Sometimes it goes down, sometimes it goes up very fast, but mostly the government and the central bank try to keep it going up slowly. And what are the different types of inflation? So I guess from a layman's perspective, really inflation is just sort of general inflation. Obviously, when the Bank of England thinks about it, they think about indices like RPI or CPI. And they're really just made up a basket of common things that people buy. So goods and services, shopping essentials, that type of thing. That term social inflation, I wanted to ask you about it because I've read it a lot in the press, but I still don't feel like I have a really clear definition of what it means. So social inflation, I suppose, is distinct from economic inflation in that economic inflation is tangible increases in the price of 
goods or services. Social inflation is something that's very much more distinct to insurance. And it comes up where instead of trying to fix something that has a tangible value, you're trying to compensate someone for something that's more intangible. And there, instead of being very fixed prescriptive cost, you have court awards, for example, that are much more open to interpretation and social pressure. And so those can go up in a much more intangible way. And what we've seen is in the US, for example, they've gone up much faster than normal inflation as society takes a much harder line on big businesses in particular, but also a much stronger sort of side of the claimant when it comes to the suffering and the harm that they've been caused by an incident or an accident. So is social inflation basically just what people used to call court award inflation, or are there perhaps more subtle differences? I think that's the biggest part of it. I would have said that it's not limited to court award. I mean, societal pressure can be felt in jury awards and sort of leading the jury to bigger awards, but it can also be felt more generally in the pressure that's brought to bear throughout sort of the industry and throughout society. So something interesting in the press recently has been talk about how ESG, environmental social governance pressures on companies, and especially the requirements for them to disclose what they're doing about those issues, could give rise to a whole future raft of shareholder claims against company directors who, in hindsight, will be judged to have given inadequate disclosure or misleading disclosure about their ESG credentials, and that that could be a nightmare for the DNO market and for claims inflation. Would that fit within what you regard as social inflation? I think it depends. I think the main thing from an insurance perspective is that this type of risk is out there and it's important that it's captured somewhere. Now, some firms may think about it through the lens of sort of latent claims and imagining that in the future they will be on the hook for DNO type liabilities arising from the actions that directors take today in respect to ESG. And others may think of it through the lens of a sort of more general increase in the cost of servicing insurance policies as new avenues of claim come up through the lens of ESG. They're kind of one and the same thing, but there's different lenses through which you can think about it. The main thing is to make sure that you captured it somewhere. What magnitude are we talking about for social and economic inflation? You've got social inflation, which is topical because it's potentially large, as in double digit, and very difficult to quantify economic inflation and just the difference between a world where we've seen maybe one or two percent RPI or CPI over the past decade and a world where the OECD is saying we might see four percent. It doesn't sound like a big number but it inflates every aspect of insurers claims and can lift kind of the boats of all the different policies equally. So in that respect it can make a very big difference. At the same time inflation acts compound over a period of time so This means even a small increase in inflation compared to what insurers expected pre-COVID can have a cumulative impact in that very long lag between selling a policy in the world of DNO or in the world of employers' liability and eventually settling those claims. So that's why insurers are really hot on it at the moment. If I'm selling some sort of liability insurance, I guess if I'm lucky, I can increase my premiums by one year's worth of inflation. But actually the annual inflation may have gone up by 1% per annum. But if I'm taking six, seven, eight years to settle claims, I'm getting seven years of that impact compounded. And it's very hard for prices to keep up with that. 
it's exactly that problem. And it's not just a problem for the pricing teams who are pitching today's prices to brokers and consumers. It's also a problem that these conversations have been had already in the past, two or three years ago, but those claims still haven't settled yet. Mm. So in a way, insurers will suffer the consequences today of guessing inflation wrong two or three years ago. We're thinking for different lines of business, how will inflation impact them differently, I guess? That's a really good question. So if you take something like household, you're fixing a physical property. Typically, it's building materials that you require. There's an index called RICS that tracks those. If you're looking at motor injury, for example, very different. There, you're trying to compensate someone for a combination of their future loss of earnings if they had a serious injury and can't work anymore. If their injury is unfortunately even more serious and they need care to help them with their day-to-day activities, then again, that's linked to wage inflation, but very specifically to what's called the ASHI index, which is the index of like health workers inflation. And those typically go up faster than the rate of inflation and also faster than the rate of return that insurers can get on their investments, which means that when insurers have to manage inflation on injury type claims, it's very difficult for them to invest in a way that deals with them in the long term. On that care workers inflation point, isn't it the case that a lot of care workers are actually from other parts of the European Union and that there may be a problem as Brexit kind of influences things more in the long term, that prices for care workers might go up just because of a constricted supply? Yes, I think that risk is very real and something that insurers who have motor portfolios should be thinking about very hard. We're already seeing an early warning shot of this in the petrol crisis that's going Mm. on as we speak. Part and parcel of that is a shortage of truck drivers and lorry drivers because the UK has been structurally reliant on them coming from Eastern Europe for a long time. Following Brexit, we now don't have that luxury and there are more barriers to that. So the likely solution from an economic perspective is higher pay and pay inflation for that sector of the economy. And I don't see much difference between what's going on there and what might happen with care workers further down the line. I've also had a similar argument with COVID that as a result of the pandemic, we're actually going to start recognising the care sector a lot more and wages might therefore increase as people value the incredibly hard work they've done over the last where are we up now, 18 months? So basically an increase in medical inflation in all yeah. its forms. I certainly think that's a big risk. And well, I guess it's a very good thing for all the people who work very hard in the care industry. But from an insurance perspective, it is a big risk. And further compounded by the recent tax rises that we've seen, which ultimately are going to be funneled into the social care industry. And no doubt that will have some bearing on the affordability of that sector, the, the cost of care within that sector, and also thus the price that insurers have to pay to settle claims in that area. So very early in my insurance career, I was told, as I'm sure many people have been told, that insurance is one of those rare products where you don't know the cost of your product until many years after you've sold it. And in that way, very different from many other industries. So it seems like inflation gets right to the heart of that problem in that you've sold the insurance product, but the inflation is then much more than you expected. That's going to cause you to make a loss. What do insurers need to be doing now when we're all getting a lot more worried about the spike in future inflation? That's a really good question. And I guess inflation cuts across the heart of all of insurers' activities from reserving for existing claims through to pricing for policies yet to be sold and then capital setting for that worst case scenario. 
So maybe the easiest thing to do is to take each one in turn and talk a little bit about that. Okay. So maybe if we start with reserving and we pick claims that have already, well, policies that have already been sold and claims that are coming through in the pipeline, whether it be now or down the line, one of the real challenges that reserving actuaries have is that the models that we use, particularly things like the chain ladder, they don't automatically tell you what inflation you're assuming when you're doing your work to calculate those liabilities. And in the past, that hasn't been too much of a problem because certainly from the time I started my career, which was around the time of the financial crisis or just after, we'd moved from this world where inflation was quite high to a world where inflation was much lower. So although you didn't really know exactly what number was captured in your inflation, well, in your reserving models for inflation, you knew pretty well that it was higher than what was actually going on at the moment. And that meant, if anything, you were erring on the side of caution, which was probably during those uncertain times a good thing. I guess the challenge is moving forwards. We don't have that same luxury because we're moving in the opposite direction. We've had 10 years of low inflation, and certainly on an economic basis, we're moving into a world where over the next couple of years, things are likely to be higher. So now we have to start thinking harder as actuaries about what information, what inflation rates are actually captured in those models. So in other words, the big risk that we all need to model now is something which absolutely is not there in the recent historical data. I think for some classes, yes, that's certainly true. I think I'd be wary of generalising because Mm. as we've just discussed, there's been this period of low economic inflation and sort of RPI, CPI being quite low. But if you look at motor damage, for example, just during that period of time, the inflation rate on that has run almost into the double digits. And that's driven by other things. That's been driven more by sort of cars becoming increasingly technological, having smart sensors in their bumpers, having more sophisticated electronics, and also with difficulty getting parts into the UK because of Brexit. So it's Mm. a very general argument to say you don't have that inflation in the history, but just that base economic inflation that floats all boats is going to be pushing classes towards a higher level of inflation than perhaps they see in the past, all else being equal. And that's a really important thing for actuaries to recognise, I think. So that was reserving actuaries where we've already got the claim. What about on the underwriting and pricing side? Yeah, it's similarly important for pricing and underwriting, but I think there, to some extent, the job is slightly easier. I mean, forecasting inflation seven to 10 years into the future is never easy. But really, I think for these teams, the important aspect is the collaboration with the business and making sure there's one set story and one set point of view. There's also huge challenges around just the market environment. I mean, most London market classes, I think there's a starting to see a hardening market now in recent years, which is positive for trying to build in more allowance for rates. But at the end of the day, you might think that the rate of inflation that you see on a casualty class, once you stack up economic inflation and social inflation is quite high. But if the market doesn't share that perception or the market is not following with those rates, then you're going to struggle to build them into your price. So I guess the important thing there to understand as a sort of pricing actuary or as a team that's setting prices is to go into that decision eyes wide open to make sure that at least you understand the risk you're taking or as far as possible the risk you're taking between setting a price based on an inflation assumption and then cutting that back to be more in line with the market if that's what you have to do. So I guess in recent years there have been some really 
strong rate increases in a lot of uh, classes of business, which is great for insurers. But I suppose what I think I'm hearing here is that some of those rate increases may not be as good as you think they are because inflation is going to eat up some of the increased rate. And then I suppose if there's an inflation hit on your past reserves, that might eat even more of the rate you're getting. So a high headline improvement in rates is not necessarily the good news we might think it is. I think that's a very fair comment. I guess also the market for casualty might feel that it's building in rate increases to allow for future social inflation in the US market, driven in particular by sort of bigger court awards and removal of tort reforms that limit damage payouts. But you don't know where the market's going to go in the future. So I guess if we've now seen the impact of social inflation in the US and things start to calm down and go through a quieter cycle, then those rate increases will look very strong come four or five years time if on the other hand actually the situation gets even worse and we see further erosion of tort reform and further increases to payouts from juries setting benchmarks then those rate increases might look very insufficient i guess also mainly talked about the us but this is going to become a bigger problem in the uk and the eu as well we're seeing increasing evidence that on casualty classes, the UK and the EU in particular are starting to follow the types of early warning indicators that we've seen in the US. And so there is a risk that casualty portfolio pricing over the past few years, the UK and the EU might get a rude awakening before the claims ultimately settle. And that's a real danger area. And then I guess the other big area for actuaries is around capital. So capital in the London market, when it comes to inflation, I guess in the past has been a bit of a neglected area, but that's definitely going to change because the first of the Lloyd's thematic reviews of inflation Mm -hmm. has just landed and is focusing on setting and validating inflation in capital. I think one of the challenges that the markets had here is that the most common way or one of the most common ways of assessing that extra inflation beyond economic inflation is either to assume it's just captured in sort of the general uncertainty of the classes of business. So, for example, assuming that it's captured in the past history of casualty portfolios. And the danger there is we know that social inflation kind of isn't. So taking that forwards, I say not okay, that's a strong word. It's recommended that rather than capturing it as an implicit part of parameterization, or alternatively just assuming that extra inflation on any particular class is an uplift or an extra factor applied after you've looked at base economic inflation. Instead, what they're asking syndicates to think about more is modelling that excess inflation, that social inflation or that wage inflation as a separate element and thinking about the uncertainty in that element on its own. I suppose when we're talking about capital, there's two things particularly on my mind that I'm a bit worried about. One is the fact that the economic scenario generators, that other ESG, the economic scenario generators used by capital models are only as good as the historical data that they're parameterized with. And we now have so many years of low inflation. I just wonder how capable they are of modeling the sort of inflation scenarios that we know can happen when you look back to, for example, the 1970s. That's one worry. The other worry I have is that I would certainly want to see firms doing scenario testing of inflation spikes. But 
I just wonder where the firms have got the stomach to do scenarios of inflation as high, again, as we saw it back in the 1970s, where you could have 20-25% per annum for a few years. Two very good points. I guess on the ESG, or economic scenario generator point, they are parameterized on a very long history of data. So mm. I think, if anything, the concern for the past 10 years has been that they're overstating the position mm. yes. <laughs> relative to the actual market or the inflationary environment that people have seen. And I guess, if anything, we're now moving back towards a world where perhaps the long run assumptions that come out of an ESG model are more accurate. I guess the challenge there is some firms have taken the step of scaling those volatilities or uncertainties in inflation down to a new lower level and they're now going to have to start to have serious conversations about whether to scale them back up again. So you're right in that sense there'll be a question of whether firms have the stomach to take the inevitable increase to capital that will come from picking a higher sort of mean inflation and then applying that uncertainty to that higher point. I guess on the scenarios point, it's always a difficult one because once you've seen historical inflation of 10, 20, 30 percent, there is always the risk that it will return. But having looked into this, I haven't seen a huge number of economic commentators seriously worrying that sort of pure economic inflation is going to go in that direction. In short, all the problems <laughs> that potentially actuaries and people working in insurance have got to face with inflation. I guess, do you have any suggestions or ideas for ways in which we can go around quantifying it, managing it, communicating it? I'm a reserving actuary at heart. So for me, combating inflation always starts in the reserving function. And I think the, the biggest change that firms could make to help address an era of either just a higher risk of economic inflation, but more generally, social inflation or other types of inflation hitting classes left, right and centre. The biggest thing that firms can do to combat that is to put a number on it. As I said at the start, the challenge reserving functions face is having models that don't put a number on inflation. It's very hard for the business to have an informed conversation around what the price should be or what the sort of really big downside risks are. If the people who are there working out the estimate of liabilities in the reserving function aren't putting a number on that best case or that yeah. central case themselves. Now, there's all sorts of challenges to doing that and types of models that typically come with a put a number on it type inflation approach are not widely adopted within reserving. But I think we're coming to the point in time where we have to start adopting them more and making more use of them in order to help the business combat inflation across the board. I like what you're saying there, and I do think it's definitely right for people to put a number on it. When I started working in general insurance, I naively thought that it would be fairly straightforward to measure historical claims inflation. And I was so disappointed to discover how difficult it was in practice. Can you just explain what the typical difficulties are and how some firms are getting over those and coming up with robust estimates of past inflation that can then inform future inflation projections? I mean, the list of problems is absolutely endless. We could have a podcast that just focused on those <laughs> and it would last hours. Why, why you can't measure past inflation? For me, I think problem number one is that actuaries who are typically trying to put a number on it often work on a different basis to the way the business thinks about inflation. So if you ask a claims department about inflation, what they'll be thinking about is, 
what claims have I settled today? And how do they compare to what claims I was settling last year? The problem is that the claims that you're settling today come from a whole mixture of different underwriting or accident years. So the claims team might settle one claim from 2005, if it's been open a really long time, and another claim for 2015. As actuaries, we tend to think about cohorts of policies all written at the same time on an underwriting basis, or accidents that occurred in the same period of time. But those claims might settle at different times in the future. So actually, it's like comparing apples with oranges. The reserving team might try and put one inflation number on it, and it might be a very different type of inflation to what the claims team are seeing. So in my mind, challenge number one is just agreeing the same basis and having a means for firms or different entities within the firm, different departments in the firm, to come together and have that conversation and not be talking apples and oranges. Okay, so getting definitions of inflation yeah. right is really important. Get, getting definitions right and having the conversation about the same number rather than numbers that could legitimately be very different. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two, I guess, is throughout this podcast, we've fallen into this trap. We talk about past inflation as though it's one number. But it really is. Past inflation can be different year on year. If you take uh, motor injury as an example, or motor damage, but particularly motor injury, there was rampant inflation sort of in the period leading up to 2010, 2011. Then you had government reform to try and lower premiums in the form of the LASPO implementation. And after that, inflation kind of tailed off for a little bit whilst people adjusted to that legislation. And then what you had was it taking off again yeah. as claims handling companies learnt all the loopholes in legislation <laughs> and managed to inflate costs again. So there isn't just one past number that you're trying to put a finger on. There can be different drivers over time. Now, when you add into the fact that data isn't perfect and there can be just lots of random fluctuations, it can be very difficult to put a coherent story together and be confident that it isn't just random changes in the data that you're over-interpreting. You mentioned the word drivers a moment ago. That's something I wanted to ask you about. What were your views on the benefits of, on the one hand, just analysing historical inflation, trying to come up with what the average inflation was, versus analysing the real-world things that drive inflation, trying to understand how those drivers operated in the past and then thinking about that, how they will operate in the future? I think... There's no one answer to the inflation problem. If there was one silver bullet, then it would have been fired and the inflation mm. dragon would have been slain. <laughs> so I think the best way to tackle it is a multifaceted approach that includes both of the things you've just mentioned. I think it can be really instructive to try to understand within your models what past inflation you have assumed and then how that compares to what you're expecting to assume or expecting to need to allow for in the future. But as I've just said, Analyzing that data and coming up with a coherent story is really difficult. So certainly, yes, looking at real world drivers, which can be easier to objectively measure and then try to translate them through to inflation assumptions can be really powerful as well. And again, the motor industry is a good example of this. You can look at the inflation of past sort of car part costs on a very granular basis. You can literally track the cost of repairing a bumper on a Ford Fiesta and how that's changed over time with different models. So if you have the analytical capability and the time and the investment opportunity, then you can start to look at how that translates through into future cost inflation on your portfolio. 
And that works really well as well in a world where you stop writing Ford Fiestas and you might start writing Audi A1s or Citroen C1s. My car knowledge is pretty atrocious. <laughs> I'm you, hoping you, that those you know, are all still models that are currently You know all the ones. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Ed. I felt you've met the brief of turning what could have been a very boring conversation into a very interesting one. So thank you so much. I guess something a bit lighter to end on is... What is the one thing we should know about you that isn't on your CV? Well, funnily enough, it relates to not turning this into a technical subject. My hidden secret is I'm actually an actuary who actively hates maths. So <laughs> I try to avoid putting oh, it into, into my day-to-day work as much as possible. Hopefully, playing this back, no one will find any maths equations or overly technical answers in it. And if not, hopefully the editor will cut them out for me. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.